There's two readings today. Um, the first reading is from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear through the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow bow, and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Our second reading this morning is from Colossians um, chapter 1 and from verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. <clears throat> and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now on this Remembrance Sunday, um, we are reflecting as Christians uh, on what we should be praying for and doing in relation to war and conflict in the world. Let me just repeat what I said earlier. We should be engaging and praying for those who are engaging in our behalf for peace in the conflicts in the world now. We should be praying for and prepared to speak out on the side of justice, to say what is right if there is right and wrong. We need to be praying for evil to be defeated, where there is evil in the world. We need to be praying for moral responsibility on the part of all who are engaged and proportionality in response. We need to pray for the casualties of war, for the alleviation of suffering in the consequential humanitarian crisis. 
We need to pray for our armed forces as they are deployed across the world. We need to pray all of these things and more. We need to support those of our number who are engaged in them actively as their vocation. But what does war and conflict drive the church to pray for and do? Alongside all of these things, what is, what is the one thing the church and no one else will do? Well, that is to pray for and to actively engage in the peace and reconciliation that only the gospel can bring about. Now, as Christians, the message of the gospel we have to proclaim is a message fundamentally of peace. When we see on a Christmas card, peace on earth and goodwill to all men, well, there's a vision statement. Peace on earth and goodwill to all men is biblical. It is what the gospel does. Peace on earth means the reconciliation of human beings to one another and goodwill to all. In the end, the gospel means a world made new, a world without warfare and sickness. And any dimension that leads to suffering in our lives, that is the glorious gospel of Jesus. We must never grow tired of what a wonderful, wonderful gospel it is that we are able to understand and charge to proclaim. There are times in our lives, all of us, when rightly we should be moved to abandon everything for the sake of telling people that. And to hold fast to that conviction is not ever to lack compassion for the suffering of humanity. Let me illustrate that in a close-to-home way. I was uh, in Dundee on one night this week with Andy. He'll be here on Tuesday. He had had the most chaotic day imaginable in the context he is in. Death, destruction, and despair. Crime. Danger. And as I was leaving, they had to take a, a youngster into their care overnight because she just couldn't be on her own. And we, in some ways, in our middle-class worlds, are protected from that kind of stuff. And yet, still behind every single door in the city, there is stuff going on. To hold fast to the conviction that the gospel that reconciles humanity to God and humanity to one another is the church's primary mandate in the world is never to be devoid of the natural expressions of human compassion or engagement in bringing peace and stability and alleviating need 
now. Nor does it mean that at times we are to engage actively for justice, for what is right, to fight against evil. One of the dangers at the moment in the Western world is the, the focus is, is, is off Ukraine for a number of reasons. The Middle East, the American-U.S. election, and something that is a blight to humanity, compassion fatigue. We will switch off the television or the internet or the podcast because we've had enough. As Christians, we must never do that. We must never, ever suffer from compassion fatigue because our eyes are open to the gospel. What precedes that is that our eyes are open to the need for the gospel. We must let our hearts be moved by what we see and by the plight of humanity but primarily by the answer. Now, let me read to you two poems. One is Psalm 46. Here's another. It's a great poem. It's like the Bible. It is realistic, but without hope. This is a, a poem written by Wilfred Owen while he was resident in the uh, Craig House Hospital just a couple of miles from here, just behind where our house is, if you know where that is. He and Siegfried Sassoon were resident there, and if you live in one of these great big mansions up there, you, you're now living in Wilfred Owen Place or Siegfried Sassoon Way. He, he wrote this. Listen to this. You're going to read this to someone in a trench? When I caught the eye of Anna this morning from Ukraine, his family are, are prisoners of war. I'm going to read this to her. What passing bells for these who die as cattle. Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stutting rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers nor bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. Now that is visceral and real and honest and bloody, but it's hopeless. Now listen to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Come, behold the works of the Lord. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and in the earth. Now, this is God's promise. 
And what it says, that war will end, that weapons will be no more, that God will be exalted among the nations and worshipped, and that God will be exalted in the whole earth. That's what he says. And what we're going to do is we're going to take on that promise this morning right down to the wire and say, well, the war has not ceased on the earth. And I know that some of you think this is just too good to be true. Because conflict is no less. Let me build step by step the case for Christ. Now, what makes God's promise here and elsewhere in the Bible for global peace, and the promise was on the lips of Jesus Christ, different from any promise or hope expressed by humanity? Well, for one thing, or in the first place, it is God who makes the promise, the Lord Almighty, the Creator God. So we're talking about a, a completely different dimension of sovereignty and power. Democracy is so that no one has power for too long. It's the worst form of government, according to Churchill, apart from every other form. Human beings, the most powerful, come and go. Are fallen or fickle. What makes God's promise of global peace, no war, no weapons, no destruction, no suffering, a new world, different is that God speaks it. Second, what makes God's promise different is that He scrolls down and identifies and deals with the real problem, which is human sin or the human heart. Now, when the Bible says heart, it means your mind, your conscience, your will, your loves. And what the gospel does is it comes into a human being and regenerates, sanctifies, their minds. So they are reconciled to God and to their fellow humanity at the level of the mind where decisions are made. And it regenerates the conscience so that injustice that every human being feels. And you know that if you go to a sports event, the injustice flows back and forward with a bit of bias. A sense of justice becomes alive in you. What is right and wrong? When the gospel regenerates you and the will, the feet, the hands, the eyes, what we do is changed. And the, the deep passions, the loves, the likes, 
are now Christ's. And when that happens, an individual is reconciled to God and by consequence reconciled to their fellow humanity. It's a radical change. And that is the problem. The problem of the human heart. An unregenerate, a fallen, a dark, an evil mind, conscience, will, and loves. Now, it's true at the macro level in the world. It's true at the micro level in our families. Wars begin because people and nations are broken in their relationship with their fellow humanity. I think that's right. And let me be clear and say this, that there are many wars in history and in the world today where individuals, nations, or groups start wars because of a desire for personal or national supremacy or for some misguided cause or agenda. And people are caught up in them at no fault of their own. They're not culpable, whether in defense or in response, no civilian casualty is culpable in war. War in itself isn't just in the ultimate sense. Going to war can be on earth. To stand against tyranny and terror, to defend the defenseless. But the root cause in the first place is the fact that humanity is not reconciled to their fellow humanity. Now, one of the things that I will say on Tuesday, and I think the Bible encourages us to this conclusion in the Middle East, is that a two-state solution of some form is the right answer. A safe place for the Israeli people and a safe place for the Palestinian people. Why can't it happen? Why is it that the current U.S. administration is potentially undermining what the previous administration did in relation to peace in the Middle East through the Abraham Accords? Some of you will know about that. Now, I don't know enough to be sure. But even at the realm of global politics, the human heart kicks in. Now, what God does when he speaks into the realm of global conflict is that he speaks and no human speaks. He identifies the deep problem that is sin. And he identifies that as the reason that humanity is irreconciled to one another and why conflict at a micro and a macro level happens. But he goes deeper still than that horizontal relationship. The deepest issue is not humanity's inhumanity to their fellow human beings or their discord or their strife. The deepest issue is humanity's broken relationship with God. God afforded a special privileged place 
to humanity. Think of our creation. We've talked about conflict today. Think of another issue like the environment. God said to us, look, there's the world. Care for it, tend it, work in harmony with one another, love this world. We have rejected his rule and his authority. And because we have rejected his rule and authority over us, the world in which we live, because that relationship is broken, these relationships are broken. If we are not reconciled to God, we cannot be reconciled to one another. What is a church? What are we in this church? We are men and women who have been reconciled to God and brought together and thereby consequentially reconciled to one another. You can't proclaim the message of peace on earth until there is peace with God. The problem that needs sorting is human sin with respect to God and consequentially human sin with respect to one another. The real problem cannot be solved by a paradigm shift in the way we think about war. I, I use that phrase because it's the vision of the IEC that I quoted from earlier. You know, we've got to cut some slack to politicians. What we're asking them to do is impossible. We're asking them to, to, to reconcile humanity. We're asking them to, to broker peace in the Middle East. Now, they may do that. But will a human heart not rise again against God and against our fellow humanity? They have an impossible job. And I wonder if it would do well if we got behind them and prayed for them and realized that they're working in the realm of a fallen world and pray that God will put in their ranks men and women who love the Lord Jesus. The most powerful medical lecture, uh, you've heard me say this before, that I ever heard was of a chair of palliative medicine who stood up in front of the massed ranks and, and you could just, his history was like a pile of funding behind him and he said the mortality rate is 100%. So moving. You almost want the, our, our, our ministers of state to have the courage to stand up and say, be still and know that God is the only answer. The real problem cannot be solved with advances in learning or technology because the problem is the human heart. You know what's most sober of all? The real problem cannot even be solved by experiencing or remembering those who have experienced the terrible effects of war. Never before in the history of human conflict have we seen as much blood, as much devastation, close, up close and personal, visceral, on our television screens. And yet, it never stops. What Jesus did... Now, let me just point you to the Colossians reading. Time is running on. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things 
were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and everything. What a glorious statement of majesty, of sovereignty, of the bigness of God. This is almighty God in the person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the creator of the earth. It's no, it's no bigger statement of Christ in the Bible. And then the text resolves to this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's incarnation, the birth of a child. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now just think of it humanly. What solves conflicts on the earth? Global leaders exercising diplomacy and life's sacrificed. What's going to solve humanity's problem? The sovereignty of God and a cross. It takes blood. To save. It took blood, Jesus' blood, to save humanity. And when he saves somebody, Colossians says what happened. You who once were alienated and hostile in minds doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless if you continue in your faith. Just think of a world like that. That's a new creation. It's what a church is. It's what revival is. Men and women reconciled to God, reconciled to one another. Men and women who, who can say, sorry. Men and women who can say, I got it wrong. Radio 4. I was up in Aberdeen this week listening to Radio 4. I mean, it's an indulgence listening to Radio 4 because it's not like, it's like about everything in minute detail. And, and it was saying that, that politicians should, should learn to say sorry. Absolutely. But if they say sorry, they're out. Because people want them to be God. Proportionality. Forgiveness. That is what a Christian is. Uh, real peace. How do we know that this peace that God offers is any different? Because God speaks. He addresses the fundamental problem that is human sin. Not just the human sin that irreconciles humanity to one another and produces conflict, but the vertical relationship which is fundamental to it all. How do we know it's true? How do we know it's true? Because wars are not ceasing. Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the proof. That's the acid test. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross and he was raised from the dead. He deals with both sin and death. But the question that remains, war hasn't ceased. Well, listen again to what the psalm says. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. It is a future promise. Now, what do we make of that? Is that pie in the sky too good to be true? Well, come back to the facts. Jesus saving death. Come back to the emergence of the church. Come back to the transformed hearts all over the world. Come back to the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Why is it future? Why is it future? Because, yes, does God intervene? Do we pray on Tuesday that he will stop the war in the Middle East? That he will create a solution for the Palestinian and the Jewish people? Yes. Do we pray for that? 100%. But, but, war will keep springing up on the earth because of the human heart. Only when the new creation dawns will war cease. And our job as Christians and churches is to do all we can to proclaim the gospel as the only answer to the problem, the deepest problem that besets the human soul. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. That is not an invitation to quiet meditation. It is not an invitation to reflection this afternoon. It is rather an exhortation to be silent and surrender our humanity and our best efforts to God. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll lead us in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, in humility, we bow before you. We surrender to your sovereignty to be still and to know that you are God. We acknowledge that it is only through Jesus Christ that peace with God and peace with our fellow humanity can be found. And to that end, we pray that you would ignite the fires of your church around the world to proclaim the glorious gospel until Jesus comes again. Will you ignite the fires in our church here to do that? Will you ignite the fires in our lives? Perhaps for some of us to give up what we're doing and to give ourselves to that glorious work of gospel reconciliation. We pray that very specially for Christians and churches in Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Gaza and the West Bank, in Ethiopia and Eritrea and Mali and Myanmar. In the power of the Holy Spirit, may their proclamation bring many people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We pray for the war in Ukraine, for a just outcome, the vindication and freedom of the Ukrainian people. We pray for progress in diplomatic channels so that warfare can end. We pray for your sovereign sway of events. We pray for the casualties of war, soldiers and civilians. We pray for those who are in need of help, whether medical or other forms of humanitarian aid, that they will receive it. We pray you would comfort those who mourn. We pray for Ukrainian brothers and sisters known personally to us here in Chamers in Ukraine and in Russia as prisoners of war. Release those in captivity, we pray. Bring families back together. And we pray against any form of compassion, fatigue, and growing indifference in the West out of what is happening in Ukraine. We pray for the war in the Middle East for Israeli families who have lost loved ones in the Hamas terrorist attack and atrocities. We pray for the release of Israelis taken hostage. We pray against the evil of Hamas. We pray for the Israeli Defense Force that their response will be proportionate. We pray for restraint and that Israeli soldiers would act justly and in mercy. 
We pray for Palestinian civilians living in Gaza, caught up in the reprisals from Israel. We pray for the Palestinian families who have lost loved ones. We pray for the care of the injured. We pray that Palestinian civilians will be allowed to flee from Gaza and that Hamas would not use them as human shields. We pray for diplomatic efforts to bring hostilities to an end, in particular for Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State. We pray for leaders of Western countries that they would act wisely and proportionately to prevent the conflict escalating across the Middle East. We pray against an attack by Hezbollah in the north of Israel. We pray for peace in the immediate conflict and for a lasting peace and reconciliation in the region. We pray for the church, Christians in Israel and a gospel witness that many Israelis would turn to Jesus. We pray for the Palestinian church and Christians and their gospel witness that many Palestinians would turn to Jesus. We pray for Jewish, Palestinian, Arab communities in the UK for their safety. Lord, have mercy. And we conclude this in every prayer, evoking the name of Jesus, your Son, your King, whom you gave to save humanity. Thank you for his saving death, his resurrection, and his promised return. And once again, we pray that for this church family and each of us, you would ignite the fire of gospel proclamation in our lives, the glorious and only message to reconcile humanity to God and one another. As those who have been saved, may we dedicate our lives to saving others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen.